0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. All things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Immediately after <clears throat> Mark's gospel in chapter 9, Jesus is descending down, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is descending down from a mountain where he was transfigured. Uh, he was glorified uh, on that mountain. And on his way down, immediately after, we see three pivotal teachings where Jesus addresses issues like marriage and children and money. And this passage, this is actually the last of our uh, regular series on the hard sayings of Jesus. This is the last of those three teachings. Jesus is with his disciples, and here he's teaching about our relationship with money. And he's saying, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to follow me, you must know at least three things. One, the power of money. Two the problem with money, and lastly, how you can be free from the power of money. One, the power of money. Two, the problem with money. And lastly, how we can be free from the grip or the power of money. First, we're going to look at the power of money. Money has this intoxicating power on our souls to shape us, to shape our values, to shape our beliefs. We treasure money. Now, when you say you treasure something, what we're saying is that we're willing to die for the things that we treasure. We're willing to do anything for the things that we treasure. It defines us in a sense. So our net worth then can easily become the measure of our self-worth. Now, in verse 17, here's a man. He's a good man. He's an obedient man. And he wants to serve God. Matthew's gospel says that he's a young person. Luke's gospel says he's a ruler, he's a king. And here in verse 22, we see that he is a wealthy man. So he's really a rich young ruler. And he approaches Jesus and he says to him, He says, Good teacher. And Jesus responds in verse 18, Why do you call me good? I mean, this is, you are a ruler, you are a king. Yet even he is looking for approval. Even he is looking to Jesus, the standard of good. When the rich young ruler calls Jesus good, he's saying, you are righteous. That word righteous, it's interchangeable with the word acceptable. You are acceptable. In other words, you are worthy. You are the only one who can validate another person because you are so good. In other words, the man sees Jesus. He sees Jesus and he comes to him for validation. And he's prepared to show Jesus that he's also good. He's also obeyed. He's kept the law, he says. So if Jesus Christ approves of him, then he must be okay. He must be okay. But but he asks, what more must I do to inherit eternal life? What he's really saying is, what do I need to do for improvement? What do I need to do to supplement my life to be even better? He comes to Jesus on his knees and he asks him this, this question. It's an earnest question. And soon after, we hear, we learn that he walks away. He's grieving. He walks away sad because of Jesus' response. Now what does that tell you? Jesus' response. The God of the Bible Jesus, he will oftentimes say things, hard sayings, that's why we call this series The Hard Sayings of Jesus, he'll say things that will oftentimes disturb you or upset you, things that you may disagree with, things that argue with you about the world or about yourself, but think about this, you need that, you need a God that argues with you. A God that always agrees with you will never be able to challenge you. A God that always agrees with you will never argue with you. He can never shape you. He can never teach you. A God that always agrees with you is really just a product of your desires. And so he'll never have the power to be able to challenge you or go against you or change you. Only a God that argues with you. Only a God that disturbs you. Only a God that even makes you feel judged sometimes or upsets you, disagrees with you. That's the only kind of God that can actually change you. It's the only only God that can actually save you. Because Jesus is a good teacher, because he's good, because he's righteous, only he can validate. He's the only one who's really able to truly see you and say, yes, I validate that you are good. And because he's a teacher, he has a view of the world. He has the view of you. That is objective. We tend to look at ourselves with a very subjective view, but not Jesus. Only Jesus, only a Jesus that is truly good can validate you, and only He can truly teach you, but He's going to go against you. He's going to argue with you at times. He's going to say things that just completely disturbs you and challenges you. Now, why? That's because he's developing a relationship with you. This isn't just a teacher. We don't come to Jesus because he's a teacher. We come to Jesus for a relationship. What's a relationship? You will never grow deeper with somebody until that person starts to challenge what you really believe, until that person starts to challenge your values, challenge the things that you want deep inside, the things that you value most in life. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't want you to come to me just to improve your life. I want you to come to me for a new life. I want you to come to me for transformation, to be changed. Now, in verse 17, the man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's just looking to improve. Verse 19, Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. And in verse 20, the man says, oh, I know that. Oh, that. I've done all that. And Jesus says in verse 21, but there's one thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And I want you to follow me. And the man couldn't. Why? Verse 22 says, because he had great wealth. In other words, losing his wealth, giving up his wealth, it was just too much for him. In fact, the verse says that he went away sad. The Greek word for sad, it's as if he was under attack. There was some threat to his life. He was under shock, and it caused great distress for him. In other words, he was depressed just at the thought of losing his money, just at the thought of giving up his wealth. It depressed him so bad that he walked away. What is greed? I'll tell you, we often think of greed as someone who sleeps on a pile of money or someone who dives into a pile of coins, but that's not really what, I mean, that's that's silly, right? It's much more insidious than that. The Bible says, Anything that you hold on to, to such a high value, to the point where it shapes you, to the point where it controls you, to the point where it shapes your confidence, it becomes your confidence, it becomes your identity when you have it, or it makes you feel like a total loser if you don't have it. That's an idol, and you're a slave. Because now what you're saying is I need to work and I need to work to get it or I need to work and work to keep it. I need to work and work to maintain it. And money has a particular power to enslave you in that way. Look at this man. Just the idea of losing his wealth, it makes him grieve and he can't do it. He's enslaved. Jesus says, I want you to imagine your life without your 401k. I want you to imagine your life without all your investments. I want you to imagine your life without crypto, your crypto accounts. I want you to imagine your life without your IRAs or your stocks where all you have left is me. You give everything else away and I want you to just follow me. This rich young ruler, he walked away sad. It's as if Jesus was threatening his life. It's as if Jesus was shocking him with a threat to his life. It was his greatest nightmare, and what does that teach us? That money has such a power over us to become the way that we measure our worth. So it becomes something you can't live without. You are tethered to your wealth, and because of that, we define ourselves with our wealth, we define other people with their wealth or their earning power. It's why we're so desperate to marry people with great status or with high degrees. Why? Think about the reasons for our greed. Greed can become a source of identity. It can become a source of intimacy. I mean, if you have wealth, you might be able to land somebody who is attracted to you more because of your wealth. Greed becomes a source of security. It becomes a source of freedom. It becomes a source of joy. But when you choose to increase that apart from God, that's the definition of sin, and that's the definition of idolatry. identity and intimacy security freedom and joy if you go all the way back to the first book of the bible in genesis go all the way back to what we know as the what's known as the garden of eden where adam and eve were they there they had ultimate identity they had ultimate intimacy they had ultimate security ultimate freedom ultimate joy that's what we had in the garden but when we chose to increase our identity and intimacy and security and freedom and joy apart from God, we ended up losing and sacrificing our identity and intimacy and security and freedom and joy. And ever since then, we've been trying to find on our own, we've been trying to find a way back into the garden without God, apart from God. And that's the power of money. Oh, we say, I need this to get back in, and you may not be able to get back in, you may not ever feel like you're back in, but what you say is, I need this to build my own. This man was a king, he had a world, he had a kingdom, it was all his. It's intoxicating. When you're intoxicated, you start to say things, and think things, and believe things that aren't true, that aren't really real. You see that? because you're under, you're under the influence, you're under the power of something else. All the while, you think you're okay. You think you're clear. You, th- you say you're, you're, you're doing okay. Money has a power to shape your beliefs that way. You say, yes, I, I, money makes you feel like I can increase my power and security and freedom and joy and intimacy and identity all on my own. Yes, it may buy you some comforts. Yes, it could buy you some services. But then you start to believe, now I have control. Now I am safe, and you're not. You've given yourself to a visible reality, and you've become blind to how spiritually poor you really are. That's the real reality. So this man approaches Jesus in verse 17. He says, what can I do? In verse 20, he says, all these commandments, oh yeah, I've kept it. I've kept it. What can I do? I mean, the very nature of an inheritance is somebody needs to die for you to receive it. You don't have to do anything. This man says, what can I do? All these things I've kept, in other words, I'm worthy. I've done it on my own. I can do it on my own. Then why does he go to Jesus in the first place? Because he's thinking, I need to make sure I did it right. I need validation. I need to make sure I'm not missing anything deep inside. Because we lost ourselves in the garden, because we lost the intimacy of God and the richness of God and the freedom of being in God and the joy of knowing God and, and the security of being in the garden, there's always a lingering undercurrent of doubt in our lives. We're always looking for approval as a result. There's always somebody we're looking to, uh, for for approval and validation. We need somebody on the outside that tells us, yes, you are okay, but no matter what kind of approval you receive here, it'll never give you the type of validation that you lost in the garden. It'll never give you the type of validation that you need, that you've been searching for all your life. And so we're desperate now for approval. That security that we saw apart from God has now rendered us insecure, and, and we say, gosh, if I just, if I just make enough, If I just work hard, then people will look at me. They'll admire me. They'll say, that person made it. That person is okay. That person has arrived. I will feel like I've arrived. It becomes a measure of our worth. And we think that that's going to get rid of our doubt, and it doesn't. It will not. Our sin has created a God-sized hole, something that nothing but God himself could ever fill. And this man, he's trying. I mean, he's done pretty well. He's wealthy. He's still young. He's a king. But in verse 21, Jesus says, but you lack something. You lack me. And so you're constantly looking for assurance, and you're looking for approval. You're looking for my validation because you don't have a relationship with me. I'm asking you to follow me. You want to follow me? You want, you want something? You give it all up and follow me. But he couldn't. The power of wealth, his greed, the power of his money, it's too great. Now, what is the problem with money then? That's the second point. This man, he walks away sad because he had great wealth. And in verse 23, Jesus says, how hard it is, how difficult it is, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 24 to 25, he actually emphasizes that he goes further. He goes, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's clearly questioning whether or not this man is going to enter the kingdom of God, whether or not he's really a follower. But notice the disciples, I mean, they're poor. They don't respond saying, I knew it. I mean, that made sense. This guy was so annoying. He's so obnoxious and arrogant. What a fool. I mean, we know we're in with you because we're poor. This man, he's rich. He's out. None of them say that. They didn't respond like that. Why not? And the answer is because this person is probably not a typical rich man. The man goes to Jesus, and he says, what must I do? It was an earnest question. He shows up on his knees And verse 19, Jesus responds, He says, Well, obey the commandments. And he particularly lays out the commandments that have to do with your relationship with other people. He says, Don't, you know, essentially what he's saying is, you know, have you killed for money? Or have you sacrificed people for money? Have you have you committed adultery? Have you cheated people? Cheated your family? Cheated your wife? Have you stolen to amass wealth? Have you lied to amass wealth to get ahead of others? Have you defrauded other people to make yourself more wealthy? Have you taken from your father and mother? Have you honored your father and mother? And the man says, no, I've kept all these things. In fact, I've always been good to people. I've treated people with honor. I've treated people with respect. In verse 23, when Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Notice, in verse 24, the disciples, they're surprised that he says that. This man walks away, Jesus is looking at this person and he says, wow, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are shocked by that. In verse 26 it says, they were even more amazed. Why? It's not because this man was not good enough. It's because this man was too good. He was too good. He made them doubt themselves. This is an honorable person. This is a respectable person. People looked up to this person. People wanted to be like this person. He must have made money. He must have made his wealth through just discipline and honorable hard work. Never cheated anybody. So when he says, I kept all these commandments, the text doesn't say Somebody was kind of whispering to the other disciples saying, no, I've heard all these rumors. I know about this guy and what he did. They don't say that. Whatever it was that made this guy wealthy, they didn't look and say, no, this is daddy's money. They didn't say that. They respected him. In fact, in verse 26, the disciples respond when Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, they say, Well, if this guy can't get in, then who can? Clearly, the rich young ruler, he had virtue. He had integrity. He was a good person. He was such a good person. He made the disciples doubt themselves. And and notice, Jesus is not saying that the simple fact of being wealthy is what condemns you. It's what that wealth does to you. He says how difficult it is. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You know what that means? Scholars, they've been struggling for centuries to understand what Jesus is saying here. There are some scholars who focus on the camel. Others focus on going through the eye of the needle. Some people focus on the needle itself. And whenever you see that among commentaries and you're reading, you see all these people, they have different views and it's because they're scattered. We don't really know at the end of the day why Jesus says that. But the one thing that they all agree is that Jesus was using a metaphor to teach that if wealth, if money has a grip on you, on your heart in a way that it did the rich young ruler, if you can't imagine life without money to make you happy in a sense, if you can't imagine life without money, without your wealth, if you define yourself by your wealth, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God. So the author is really showing us, just writing in a very poetic way, how insincere this man was. He shows up on his knees, shows up on his knees when he approaches Jesus. But once he realizes he doesn't like what Jesus is saying, he gets up on his own two feet and he walks away on his own. And that's how we are when we go to Jesus. When we go to Jesus, we show up on our knees Say, ah, oh, please give me this, and please give me this. Those are the things that we really treasure. But we don't want to surrender anything. We don't want to submit anything. That kind of Jesus is just a good luck charm. That kind of Jesus is just a lucky rabbit's foot. He's just a genie in a lamp. Jesus is essentially giving this man eternal life. Follow me. Follow after the pattern of my life. The pattern of my life. Come to me for me. But the man really was just coming to Jesus for things. So his wealth, because the wealth, his wealth was the source of his life. His wealth is what powered him, gave him strength, gave him confidence, gave him status, it gave him security, it gave him joy. He was nothing without his wealth. And if that's you, Jesus is saying, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God unless, verse 27, God himself gets involved. Disciples say, who then can be saved? If this man can't get in, who can get in? And Jesus says, nothing is impossible for God. All things are possible with God. In other words, money has such a grip on our lives. That's the problem. You can't enter the kingdom of God. It would take God himself to intervene. How? How can we be free from the grip of money? This rich young ruler, like a lot of us in this room, he says this. He's saying, I'm a good person. I've been obedient all my life. Yes, I have some wealth. Because of that, people admire me. People want to be like me. People respect me. We tend to have great confidence in our abilities as a result. We do a lot. It's the source of our confidence. And when you go to Jesus... We're still not sure what else we need to do, but we don't, you know, because, you know, we tend to go to Jesus, we're looking to know where we stand with him. And so we say, yeah, I know what I'll do. I'm going to plug into a church. I'm going to plug into a community. But it's really to feed our loneliness. So when you're in community, what do we do? We rely on the same gifts. We rely on the same confidence, the same ego that gave us success in the first place. And that actually fuels our pride. So even though what we say is we come to the church, we come into this room, we come to this place, we join community, we plug in, and we say, yeah, yeah, it's good to be part of community. We love that word in this church. But it's really to feed our loneliness. It's really to fulfill our needs. We're actually using Jesus to fill that empty part in our hearts, and our lives. And the way we get community is to augment the very same things that brought us success in the first place. We say, I'm going to serve. But then we're serving in a sense to be with people, to be noticed by people. Some of us, we're serving ourselves. Jesus says, obey the commandments. We say, obey. I mean, I know that. I know the commandments. I don't kill people. I don't commit adultery. I did these things. I'm part of community. I serve. I worship but you still haven't come to Jesus out of a deep need for Jesus. You haven't come to, you've come to Jesus to make relationships with everybody else, but you haven't come to Jesus to make a relationship with him. Yes, you might have come to learn. Oh, I love reformed theology, we say. We come to make friends. We come to serve. We come to give. We come to contribute. How'd How'd Jesus respond to the rich man? He could have easily said, the rich man says, I've done all these things, he could have easily said, I know you, each of you. And I know that you, don't, you didn't truly obey since you were a child. I know this. He could have easily said that. He could have said, in fact, you couldn't obey well this morning. But he doesn't say that. Look at the patience of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. In verse 21, it says that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Look at the compassion of Jesus. Why was he so compassionate? I mean, how many times have you seen Jesus either approaching or approached by Pharisees and the teachers of the law? And he's harsh with them. But here with this rich young ruler who also has tremendous pride, who doesn't get it, he's like a Pharisee in a sense, And Jesus is so gentle. The author notes that he looked at the man and loved him. Why? It's because he understands. He understands. In fact, no one would understand more of what it's like to be a rich young ruler more than Jesus. No one would understand what it's like to be asked to give up everything to obey God more than Jesus. Jesus tells the man, go, I want you to sell your possessions, give, just surrender all of your possessions. I want you to empty yourself. I want you to give to people who are not deserving of this, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And then he says, I want you to follow me. In other words, I want you to live according to the pattern of my life, to live according to the pattern of my sacrifice. You want to be free from the power of your wealth? You want to be free from the grip of the money that you have in your accounts? Or maybe the money you don't have in your accounts, but you want to be free of that too? He says, let it all go, everything, and follow after the pattern of Jesus' life and his death. No one would understand the pain of giving up their wealth and their status more than Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who knows what it's like to empty yourself of everything for the poor. Jesus gave up the highest glory, the highest wealth, the highest status, the highest honor, the inheritance of God. He had it all and he left it all. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and he Bled for Adam's helpless race. He gave it all up. Philippians chapter two says, even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The rich man says, I have wealth. I have the world. But I want eternal life. I want to be like God. His greed is taking him even higher. He says, I want it all. But Jesus, Jesus instead made himself nothing, became a servant, and he emptied himself of everything, emptied himself of his glory, and he obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. And so you have Mark chapter 14, Jesus Christ, he's in Gethsemane, and in this garden, Before he's arrested, he's grieving. The text says that he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and there he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That word sorrow is the same word in Greek. That word sorrow is the same word in Greek that's used to describe the rich young ruler's sadness when he walked away. In that moment, Jesus is experiencing the same grief and sorrow. It's like something was threatening his life. He was staring down some abyss at the, at the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he see down there that would bring him to such distress that even the thought of experiencing that would ruin his life, his ultimate nightmare? And he was staring right down that abyss. So when the, Jesus looks at the rich young ruler, he understands his pain, because he's, he's about to experience it. He understands the sadness. He understands how difficult it is to surrender everything, because Jesus is about to do just that. He's about to lose everything. And Jesus is far richer, far more virtuous, the only man who could ever say that he kept every commandment and obeyed since he was child, and he was still young. He was in his prime. And he was a king. His kingdom is far more vast, far greater than anyone else's in the world. And he had status. He had the highest honor. And he had wealth. He had the highest, the greatest wealth. He was far more virtuous, far more wealthy, far more a king. But in Gethsemane, in that garden, He suffered grief to the point of death because he knows what else he's being called to surrender. God said, I want you to go and I want you to surrender everything. I want you to empty your life on the cross and he did. And so he was born without status. Jesus lived and grew up in poverty. He was homeless. The rich young ruler, he walked away. But this points to the greatest rich young ruler who did not walk away. In fact, he obeyed completely and fully. It was his mission to empty himself. And on the cross, Jesus didn't just give up his worldly wealth or his status. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I'm giving up my relationship with the Father. I'm giving up my relationship with God. I'm surrendering the ultimate love. This is my greatest nightmare, and it's coming true. It's become a reality. God is my identity. The Father and I are one. He is the sum of my worth, the sum of my wealth. He defines my identity and security and intimacy and freedom and joy, and he has walked away from me. The cross is the ultimate place of surrender. He was losing the father. This was his ultimate nightmare. This was his greatest loss. He's saying, I'm cosmically bankrupt. The rich man, he grieved over just the thought, just the idea of losing his, his wealth, the losing, losing everything. And yet Jesus grieved at the certainty of it, the certainty of losing everything, the experience of losing everything. And it wasn't just his worldly treasure, it was his soul. It was his identity. And he did it for his people. Jesus Christ gave up the love of the Father so that we could have the love of the Father. Jesus Christ gave up security, ultimate security, so we could have ultimate security. Jesus Christ gave up the highest status so that He could give us and lift us up to the highest status. What did God treasure so much that He would give up his treasure, His only son? What did Jesus treasure so much to surrender everything? Not just risk everything, but surrender everything. We say we would die for our treasure. Jesus Christ died for you, his people. So when he says give up everything and you will have treasure in heaven, he's talking about you. You are his treasure in heaven. He gave up the greatest treasure to make you his treasure. And when you see Jesus Christ emptying himself for you to make you his treasure, there's the only validation that you need. There is the measure of your worth. This is what you've been looking for in every relationship that you've ever been in. This is what you're working for in every promotion you've ever sought after. This is what you're looking for in every bank account, every time you look at your crypto account. And you're saying, I need to build, I need to build, I need to build, imagine Jesus on the cross, building up and amassing his wealth, which is you. And when you see, to the degree that you see that, and trust that that was for you, to the degree that you see that you are his treasure, he becomes your treasure. And that will then loosen your wealth, loosen your grip on your wealth. Rather, loosen the grip of the wealth that wealth has on you. Look at the beauty of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. I mean, think about the many ways that our day is shaped by money. Money often defines where you eat, what you eat, how often you eat, even who you eat with. And that's just eating, and that's a lot. But think about the big decisions you make around money. It defines what you do, what you want to be. A lot of us are in, we stay in jobs and careers that are miserable, just make us incredibly miserable. Why? Because of money. Money often dictates where you live because you want that life. It often dictates who you want to date, who you marry, You know why? Think about it. We dismiss certain people just on the lack of pedigree, just on the lack of earning power, because it still defines our worth. We should be looking at godly character. We should be looking at genuine repentance. But we're defined by wealth, and we're intoxicated and shaped by it. You would want, you would need actually somebody who understands what it means to be free. You would want, you would need somebody who understands integrity. You would want, you would need somebody who understands what it means to be secure, to have joy, to be repentant, to have faith, to love. The visible reality is I need a safe place for my children, my future children. The real reality is, we all need rescue. Your children will need rescue. Money isn't gonna save them. We are on a ball of rock, traveling at like astronomical speeds, spinning through the universe. At an astronomical speed, 70,000 miles per hour, is that right? And one day, it's all gonna come to an end. This ball of rock is one day just gonna burn up, it's gonna open up, and everyone's gonna get swallowed in, in a sense. That's metaphorical, right? I'm not a scientist. What's gonna save you from that? Your wealth? Your degrees? Don't let your wealth define you. But when the gospel sets you free, it will open you up to amazing opportunities to give radically because of the grace of God in Christ radically poured out for you. The 21st century is going to be amazing. Today we have more missionaries coming to the United States then I believe we have missionaries being sent out by the United States. And they're targeting the wealthy because our neighboring countries know that if the wealthiest nation in the world is reinvigorated, renewed in their commitment to Christ, what will people of wealth be able to do for the glory of God that no other country can ever afford to do or even imagine doing? It's amazing. I'm blessed to be in a church, in a community where people are educated. People are uh, good money earners. What are you going to do with that? I mean, let me just speak to you like a a father. What are you going to do with that? Are going to find new restaurants to eat at for the rest of your life? Is that what you're... Is that what your life has pretty much amounted to? Will you, will the gospel make you so wealthy in Christ that it opens up radical opportunities for you to take risks for the kingdom of God, to give to the glory of God, to empty yourself of resource, Time relationships because of the grace of God in Christ. Let's pray.